have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 4. Our text today is verse 13 through 22 in a message entitled, Spending Time with Jesus is Powerful. We've learned in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit empowers believers and churches to live for the glory of God, to share the good news about Jesus, and to advance the kingdom of God. In chapters 3 and 4, we've covered quite a bit of territory, including the healing of the lame man at the gate called Beautiful, the proclamation of the gospel that followed in Peter's preaching, the trial of Peter and John, and now we're moving into a more intense time of persecution of the church as they begin to expand and to grow. Peter and John had healed the crippled man, the disabled man, at the gate called Beautiful at the temple. And God had used them to heal this man who was a beggar. He was in his 40s, and he had been that way since he was uh, born. And people knew him. They knew his life. They knew his experience. And the spectacle of this man showing up in the temple complex, walking and leaping and praising God, must have been something else as they drew a crowd and people gathered in both amazement as well as curiosity about what was going on. Peter took that opportunity to preach Jesus. And when we preach Jesus, proclamation leads to persecution. Proclamation leads to trouble. And they were arrested. They were uh, thrown into jail. Peter subsequently addresses the religious leaders. And this is not the only time this is going to happen in Acts. There are four different occasions where some of the followers of Jesus are brought before the Sanhedrin. But what Peter does is he turns the tables on the Sanhedrin and he indicts them. And he says very plainly, you crucified Jesus, but God raised him up. And then Peter made it clear that Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus is the foundation of the church. He's to be shared with the world because there's only one way of salvation to be reconciled to God. And now we pick up in what I believe is not only the first verse of this section, but also the key verse in verse 13. And here's what the Word of God says. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized they had been with Jesus. The disciples of Jesus turned the world upside down. And the reason they were able to turn the world upside down is because of Jesus and his power in their lives. They would take the message about him from Jerusalem across the Roman Empire and the known world in that day. And the dynamic power of Jesus would transform people who had not been formally trained, had not been formally educated in the law or in anything else. And when the members of the council realized that, They were amazed at the confidence or the boldness of Peter and John who had not been educated in the rabbinical schools. They were astonished by their boldness and impressed by what they were doing, even though it was in a negative way. But it's important to understand that they were not impressed by the background of these men because they really had none. Uh, They could not depend on their education because they had no formal training in that regard. They could not depend on their credentials because they had none. They could not depend on their religious pedigree because, oh, they didn't have one of those either. 
All they had was the message and the power. Now, I want to make a statement here that I think is foundational to this message. And if you get this, the rest of the message will come together for you. And if you don't, you're going to miss the whole thing. There is a difference in knowing about Jesus and spending time with Jesus. There is a difference between information and transformation. There's a difference between respecting the Christian faith and actually embracing the Christian faith. If you profess to be a follower of Jesus and you had to stand today in this assembly and give a 100% honest and transparent testimony about your level of focus on Jesus and your devotion to him, your dedication to prayer and the word, what would you have to say? Are you living your life in Jesus in such a way that you could give a bold word about what God has done in your life and what he is currently doing in your life? Some Christians, maybe even many Christians, spend little of any time with the Lord regularly. This is one of the secrets that we don't like to talk about in the church because it starts to make people feel uncomfortable. But there are many people who come regularly even who sit in churches who hear messages, maybe even listen to Christian radio on the radio, but are not walking with Jesus Christ daily, are not spending time with him so that their lives can be transformed. If you want to be a spiritual person, and if you want to live in that grace that God has uh, poured out on you, and if you want to have the fruit of Christ in your life, then you have to abide in him. You remember in John chapter 15 where Jesus He's talking about the importance of abiding and he describes God the Father as the vineyard keeper and then Jesus is the true vine and we are the branches. And Jesus talks about the importance of abiding in him. What does abiding in Jesus call for? Well, it calls for faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but then it also calls for dependence on your life, uh, in your life for him uh, for all things. And this is so important because abiding is something that is continual, and that's how we grow in Christ. You cannot abide in Jesus unless you spend time with Jesus. So what I want to do in the balance of the time that we have together today is consider the fruit of spending time with Jesus. What is the spiritual fruit that God will give in your life when you spend time with Jesus and draw near to him? First of all, spending time with Jesus empowers our boldness. And I want to pick up reading here in verse 14. And the scripture says, And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. After they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. In verse 18, so they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So the scene is that the religious leadership had nothing to say. The reason they really had nothing to say is this man who had experienced this great miracle had stood in their midst and everybody had seen him. He had been healed. The crowd saw it. The religious leaders saw it. The apostles saw it. 
So they sent them out, and the Sanhedrin continued to confer among themselves. They didn't know what to do because everybody had witnessed this miracle. Peter and John had technically broken no laws. So their conclusion was that they were going to threaten the apostles not to speak in the name of Jesus again to try to stop the spread of the message. It's interesting that they deliberately refused to refer to Jesus by name. They only referred to him as this name. They're thinking, well, we thought we got rid of him. That didn't work. And, and now we're, we've threatened these uh, representatives of his with the consequences that'll come. They're standing defiantly. What are we going to do? They were in a conundrum. Peter spoke boldly of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and they had disagreed with that. And I think another interesting point here is that had they had, the religious leaders, had they had the capacity to refute the resurrection, this would have been the moment. This would have been the opportunity. They had these men before them. They had the crowd. They're speaking about the resurrection of Jesus with which the Sadducees disagreed. They did not hold to that. And if they had had even a shred of possibility to make these people look like fools because Jesus had not actually been raised from the dead, I guarantee you they would have done it in that moment. But they couldn't because they didn't have anything. So their response was to impose a ban on any further proclamation of the name of Jesus. But as we read in verse 13, it says that they observed their boldness. This word boldness might also be translated in your translation as confidence. So boldness and confidence go together, but they're not exactly the same thing. And I'll show you a verse that illustrates that in just a moment. Boldness is the courage to speak or to act regardless of the risk or potential cost. So you know what's right. You have a potential circumstance of conflict. You're given the boldness to be willing to speak into that and to speak the truth and to say what needs to be said. And in doing so, you represent God in, an, in a plain, direct, and confident way. Where does this boldness come from that we have as Christians? Jesus secured it for us. Paul writes in Ephesians 3 and verse 12, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith. So we have access to the throne of God, we have access to our Father through the blood of Jesus, and that gives us boldness on the one hand because we have confidence on the other hand to approach. So what Paul says to us is what we have, we have because Jesus has given it to us. And we have that boldness and access through our faith. Now, a word of warning here. I do believe that there's a difference uh, between godly boldness and worldly boldness. Godly boldness is not anger. It's not aggression. It's an assertiveness that is guided by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't relate to volume. It doesn't relate to fervor or intensity. It relates to that confidence that you have because you've been to the Lord and you have boldness in His Word about the truth. Worldly boldness, on the other hand, can be arrogant and confrontational. It can come across as angry, and oftentimes it is angry in that sense, uh, in that type of co confrontation. Proverbs 13 and verse 16 says, Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool flaunts his folly. 
And then Proverbs 28 and verse 1 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Boldness is not dependent on your personality type. A soft-spoken person who is calm and at peace in their demeanor can be the boldest person in the room or the boldest person in a situation if they're empowered by the Holy Spirit, acting in the right way and communicating the truth. And by the same token, people who are often brash and outgoing and seem like they're the actual bold ones can shrink back when boldness is needed from a spiritual standpoint. Boldness is born out of faith. And boldness comes from knowing that God is with you and knowing that you are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are many examples of this in the Bible. We find boldness that led Moses to face the past. He went back to Egypt, motivated by a vision and a calling from God of working through him to save his people from the suffering that they were experiencing. And God promised all the way that he would be with him through his journey. Boldness led David to face impossible circumstances. You remember when the Israelites and the Philistines had a standoff, uh, King Saul and the Israelite soldiers were dismayed by the size of the enemy's giant, uh, Goliath. And what did David do? He took courage and he killed that defiant giant. And I think part of the boldness that David had was that David remembered what God had done in the past. And when he was stepping forward, David was not stepping forward in his own strength. David is stepping forward and he's remembering all of the power of God that he had seen at work in his life. He had seen how God had intervened on his behalf and given him a power. That there was no other way that he could have had it. And he stepped out there and was willing to do what he did because of that. So our collective experiences as individuals and as a church body remind us of what God has done and it gives us boldness in the present. It was boldness that led Esther to take a risk. She risked her life to persuade her husband, the king, to foil the plans of Haman to annihilate the Jews in their country and she fulfilled the God, calling of God on her life uh, at just the right time it was boldness that led Daniel to stand firm you remember when they laid the trap for him uh, by manipulating the king to sign into law or regulation that would put to death anyone who was worshiping another god lowercase g but him what did Daniel do he kept on praying he kept on trusting he kept on believing that God was going to be with him, and he was bold in that moment. Uh, it's in book, the book of Acts that we find multiple examples of boldness in the early church. Acts chapter 13, in Antioch, Pisidia, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly against the Jews who reviled them. Acts chapter 14, in Iconium, they were opposed and they remained for a long time. And the Bible says that they spoke boldly for the Lord. In Acts chapter 18, in Ephesus, Apollos spoke boldly in the synagogue. In Acts chapter 19, Paul taught in the synagogue at Ephesus. And for three months, the Bible says that he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. In Acts chapter 26, in Caesarea, when Paul's put into prison, he speaks boldly to King Agrippa. And then finally, in Acts chapter 28, when Paul was under Roman house arrest, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this, with boldness and without hindrance. Wouldn't you like for that to be the way that our ministry carries forward? Wouldn't you like for that to be the way that our Christian lives make progress is that we do so with all boldness and without hindrance? Meaning that God is at work in us 
as we are at work for him. So spending time with Jesus empowers our boldness. But there's a second fruit. Spending time with Jesus empowers our testimony. Now we pick back up in verse 19. Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. The apostles knew that they could not obey the commandment that had been given to them. Uh, They told the court so. The best that could be done was to try to forbid the preaching of the gospel. But don't miss what's happening in this moment. The rejection of the command by the apostles was a direct act of defiance. This was a direct act of disobedience to intentionally disobey the authority because they knew that they had a higher authority to whom they were accountable. And the goal is to follow God whether or not there is an ungodly authority. And we are not primarily citizens of nations, but rather citizens of heaven. So if we are citizens of heaven, first and foremost, and if that defines who we are, then it defines also what we do. And I believe that higher obedience that is due to God is at issue, and it rises above the commandments of any religious or political system or structure that could be put in place by people. So as followers of Jesus, we've been called and empowered by the Spirit of God to spread the good news about Jesus. But I want you to remember that just weeks before, Peter had denied that he even knew Jesus. He denied that he even knew the man to the, to the servant girl. And here he is standing before this powerful body of people who did have authority in their realm. And what does Peter do? He stands and speaks with boldness. What made the difference? I believe we find the answer in chapter 4 and verse 8. Because in verse 8, it says, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. If we want to have an empowered testimony for Jesus, then we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. You remember Jesus warned the disciples that they would be brought before the rulers. He said, don't worry about what you're going to say in advance. The Holy Spirit is going to help you in that very hour later he told them they would be brought before rulers for his name's sake and it would lead to an opportunity for their testimony this is part of that he promised he would give them words uh, and wisdom so here we have peter's witness before the sanhedrin that was not due to natural giftings it was not due to the fact that he was an eloquent spokesman It wasn't due to the fact that he's coming with this whole body of work and these credentials and he's standing before them and saying, hey, guys, y'all need to listen to me because I'm an expert in this situation. He had none of that. But what he had was he had the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, that makes all the difference in the world. What the Bible teaches is that at salvation, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. And then we are continually filled with the Holy Spirit as we walk in holiness and submission. So when you're saved, you have just as much of the Holy Spirit as you're ever going to have. But the question is, how much of you does the Holy Spirit have? You've got all the power that you need. You've got all the boldness that you need. But do we have surrender to the Holy Spirit so that it's operative in our lives? Now, we don't have a real good concept of persecution in the West for the Christian faith. 
for Jesus in our culture. Obviously, there's the threat of marginalization that bothers everybody. You share your faith and somebody makes fun of you or they mock you or they don't want anything to do with what you're sharing. Um, and then there are also some people who think that if you live for Jesus, it's going to be a smooth ride with no opposition or persecution. But that's certainly not a biblical concept. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, that's an interesting verse to me. It carries a lot of weight. And the reason it's an interesting verse and it carries a lot of weight is he doesn't say those that go to the darkest place might face some persecution or those that go to the place where there's the fewest believers will face persecution or any number of other things that he said. He said, all who desire to live a godly life. So the, the threshold of whether or not you're potentially going to experience some persecution and difficulty in your Christian life is if you desire to live a godly life. It's just the desire. If it's there, what that's going to do because you're filled with the Spirit is that's going to cause you to be willing to step into the arena and say what needs to be said and speak the truth in love and share the gospel faithfully and call out error when you see it. And when you do that, persecution is going to come. It's inevitable that trouble is going to follow. Some people also think that persecution is going to come primarily from outside the church. Uh, I wish that were true. But there are also problems at times within the church when people lose sight of Jesus. And we need to be aware of what God does to embolden and empower our testimony in him. You may have followed some of the geopolitical wranglings between Iran and Israel. I'm not going to go into depth relative to that conflict, but I want to make a larger point. At least three generations of radical Iranian clerics have viewed Israel as illegitimate and as occupying Islamic lands. Uh, Muslims are actually thought to be a religious, uh, to have a religious obligation to resist Israel and it feeds into anti-Semitism around the world. As it relates to Christianity in Iran, the law prohibits Muslim citizens from changing or renouncing their religious beliefs if they hold to Islam. Christianity is technically permitted within the boundaries of the limits of worship that they present under the law. But as anecdotally, at least, the stories go, uh, there are a lot of experiences of hostility that seem to be the norm, as well as house churches being the only option because of the level of persecution. Now, I say all that to say this. One might think that in a place like that, where it's so hardened against the gospel, where people don't want anything to do with it, they're committed to a different set of beliefs, one might think that in that circumstance that the church would be dead on arrival, that, that it wouldn't be growing or flourishing or anything good of account happening. But that is the furthest thing from the truth. In fact, before the 1979 Islamic Revolution in Iran, there were only a few hundred known converts to Christianity uh, from Islam. And there have been wave after wave of persecutions against Iranians who decided to be Christians. And today, the outcome is, Iran has the fastest growing church in the world, even though owning a Bible in their native language is illegal. It's incredible. Today, there are said to be nearly one million Christians in Iran, the majority of whom came from Islam and it is the fastest growing evangelical movement in the world, according to Operation World. 
But now listen to some more statistics. When you look at what's happening in Christianity around the world, you might be tempted to think if you're myopically focused on North America or the United States or you're focused in on Western Europe and that's all you can see, you might think that Christianity is on the decline, that we're in trouble, that we're on a downhill run. That also is far from the truth. Christianity is growing on five out of the seven world's continents. 11 of the 20 countries with the fastest growing rates um, of Christianity are Muslim majority countries, more than half. 19 out of 20 top countries that are growing in Christianity are in Asia and Africa. God's at work. And the heart of how God is at work around the world is he's using people that are humble from various backgrounds, not prominent, not necessarily well-educated in the things of the world, but what they have is the power of the Holy Spirit and a testimony of a changed life. And because they have a testimony of a changed life, they're not afraid to share it with people. And God is using that to grow his church. A bold testimony for Jesus Christ can make a difference in the world. Even a simple invitation to church can make an eternal difference in somebody's life when they come to know Jesus and hear about him. And it doesn't matter what survey or study that you look at, they all are consistent that people who come to churches for the first time in our context, 70 to 85% of those people come because somebody that they knew invited them. That's why they come. Now, some come because they see it on the internet or they were driving by and they saw it, or they were invited to a ministry, or they heard something about what the church was doing. But the main way that people get connected to churches, and I think also to Christ, is through individuals sharing. And that means that we need to have a strong testimony for the Lord. The pages of the Bible are filled with accounts of people telling what God has done for them. I think about one of the most vivid ones that appears in in John chapter 9 where Jesus encountered a man who was blind from birth and miraculously enabled him to see. After repeated questioning by skeptical local religious leaders, the man could only say, one thing I know that though I was blind, now I see. You don't have to have a fully developed testimony even necessarily if you know a few scripture verses. And if Jesus has gotten a hold of your life and changed your life, it can be something as simple as, listen, all I know is I once was blind, but now I see. And God changed my life through the gospel. And we share that with other people. And Jesus was bold in his earthly ministry. If we want to pattern ourselves after him, the Bible says, as he is in the world, so are you. But he was bold in that earthly ministry. He confronted the scribes and the Pharisees. He called them hypocrites and whitewashed tombs and a brood of vipers. You remember he was invited to lunch at a Pharisee's house and he deliberately avoided the ceremonial washing before the meal. And when the host said something about it, Jesus pronounced woes for their hypocrisy. We talk about Jesus being love and compassion. And yes, Jesus is love and compassion, but Jesus is the very embodiment of truth. And because Jesus is the embodiment of truth, and because Jesus is the very expression of the righteousness of God in the world, then Jesus is going to be bold. And what has happened in our culture, in some places in the church as well, is that people have lost confidence, and they're bowing down to the culture rather than submitting to the Word and to the Spirit, and we're lying to people about their lives. 
And that cannot be. How can we participate with some of what's going on in the culture and affirm people in it? And not just affirm it, but also celebrate it and not stand in the truth. That is the opposite of boldness. And I want you to know that it is not love. Because we speak the truth in love. We tell people what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. And that's what Jesus modeled for us. And we, like Peter and John, should be unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Because spending time with Jesus empowers our testimony. And then there's a third and final fruit. Spending time with Jesus empowers our worship. Now we begin reading again in Acts chapter 4 and verse 21. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. Peter and John were on trial before the same court that sent Jesus to be crucified. The apostles were threatened further. Undoubtedly, they were told of the social and legal and consequences of their defiance. But how are you going to punish them when the whole crowd has seen the miracle that was performed on a man who was over 40 years old. Faced with the defiance of the apostles, the religious authorities could do nothing except repeat their threat again. But what I want you to understand here is that they were responding to public opinion, not God's opinion. This crowd was building. These men were speaking, and they didn't know what to do with them. So they warned them, and they let them go. Luke explains to us that their action was due to the fear of the people who for the moment were at a loss because of the impact of the miracle. The people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. So what does it mean to give glory to God? It means to honor Him with our worship because worship is an act of surrender and submission. You understand that when we're worshiping individually or we're coming together like this and we're worshiping congregationally, that it's not going through the motions. It's not attending something. It is participating in something. And that's something that we are participating in is that we're giving glory to God because God is worthy of our glory. And that should be our attitude as we come together. Uh, not our own personal preferences or, or our, our own desires, but what does God want for us? And God is glorious and he possesses all true majesty. Listen to what Isaiah 42 and verse 8 says. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. When we glorify God, we acknowledge his greatness, his works, and we obey his word. And the reason that we worship is because Jesus is worthy of worship. And the Bible says that God is seeking after worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So we give glory to God for Jesus because he's been sent. He came from heaven to earth and he took on flesh and dwelt among us. We give glory to God for Jesus because he is our savior. It's the way that we're justified and made right with God, the way that we're sanctified and we grow in our Christian life in the way, way that we'll be glorified someday when we're in the presence of God in heaven. And we give glory to Jesus because he's supreme over all. We've already learned that Jesus is the cornerstone. And if Jesus is the cornerstone, that impacts everything because we align our lives around the cornerstone so that our lives are built up in a way that is consistent with who we are in Christ. That's the focus. And it has to remain the focus. And in the words of 
Fanny Crosby in the 1875 hymn, To God Be the Glory, Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory for great things he has done. This situation started out really shaky. Peter and John were on trial before the same court that had done what they did to Jesus. And look what God did. 2,000 more people came to faith in Jesus. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and preached boldly. A miraculous healing was confirmed. The apostles would leave more bold than they had ever been, and God was glorified. The reason he was glorified is because spending time with Jesus empowers our worship. Are you spending time with Jesus so that your worship is deepening? Your character is growing. Your desire to reach the lost is a burden. And you surrender your life to him. I share this quote with you from J.I. Packer in Knowing God, one of the most influential books, in my view, of, from the 20th century. There is no peace like the peace of those whose minds are possessed with full assurance that they have known God and God has known them. And that this relationship guarantees God's favor to them in life through death and on forever be bold testify to the truth give glory to God how? by the power of the Holy Spirit that's how now let me tell you something as we close out you've got one life to live you can spend that life in a lot of different ways you can serve self, you can chase after what the world has to give to you, you can try to get the attention for yourself and a lot of other things that go along with all that. Or you can spend your life glorifying God and focusing on what eternally matters. I want to spend my life glorifying God and focusing on what matters. And the only way that can be a reality for us is if we spend time with Jesus. So I ask you in closing, have you left your first love today? Have you grown stale, lukewarm in your faith? Most people are just a prayer of repentance away from true life change. And today could be your day. Let's bow our heads together for a moment. In just a moment, Pastor Eric's going to lead us in our closing song. My prayer is that through us, Jesus would be magnified and exalted so that he would increase and we would decrease. Help us, Lord. Humble us before you so that this would be the reality. I don't know what your spiritual condition is today. Maybe you don't yet know Jesus. Today would be a good day to meet him, to turn from your sins and to trust in the one who lived a perfect life and died in your place on the cross, was buried in a borrowed tomb and was raised on the third day and even now seated at the right hand of God the Father. He invites you to believe in him, to trust in him, to follow him as his disciple. That's the starting point of it all. You, you, you can't run the race unless you come to the starting line and you get going in the right direction. But I want to pray, I know in a message like this from my brothers and sisters in Christ, that, 
that we feel this because this is where we live spiritually. We all know that we want, we want more. We, we want to grow. I, I believe in the heart of every genuine believer is a desire to walk with Jesus and to make their life count. But sometimes we get off focus and we, we don't go in the direction we need to. You can just ask the Lord today right where you are. Say, Lord, would you help me to make Jesus the priority over all in my life? Would you help me to spend time with him so that my heart and life would be transformed? Father, we love you. We praise you. We give you this time of conclusion and response.